Uh, it's time for our Bible reading. Uh, so do pick up your Bibles. We're on page 1151. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 22. So page 1151. All there. Okay, I'll begin. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, sorry, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the Lord's word.
You would have noticed, as the passage was read for us this evening, that the tone is very clearly warning, isn't it? And the question for us is, will we listen? Will we listen to the warning? I was once at Birmingham New Street Station, and the alarm went off, followed by the announcement that we were to evacuate the building immediately. Of course, there were a number of responses to this. Some people probably didn't hear the warning. Lots of people did hear it, but ignored it. Presumably, they thought that it was a false alarm, that they would be okay, that it wasn't that important. But the sensible ones amongst us, myself included, didn't see how long we could stay in the building. We didn't see how close we could stay to the building. You see, truly listening to the warning in that situation was shown as we got out as quickly as possible. What's it going to look like to listen to the warning that the Apostle Paul lovingly and graciously gives us in these verses? Verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. An idol can be anything or anyone that takes the place that God should have in our hearts. Anything that we substitute God for, anything that we worship instead of the one true God. And Paul says, listen up and flee. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Let's pray as we begin that we would be those who truly listen to the warning that Paul gives us. Father, we pray that you would help us to indeed listen to what you have to say to us this evening. Help us not to think that we don't need this warning. Help us not to ignore the warning. Instead, help us to listen that we might be those who do as 14 tells us to, flee from idolatry. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to consider this passage in two sections, and I've given the first one the heading, The Danger of Presumption. The Danger of Presumption. If we think back to last week at the end of chapter 9, we were on the athletics track, we were in the boxing ring, where Paul was telling us of his own experience, speaking of his own self-discipline so that he is not disqualified from the prize. Well, as we move into chapter 10, Paul takes us from the P department, we head across to the history block, where he gives us an important lesson about Israel. You see, it turns out that these Christians in Corinth, remember this church that likes to think of them as clever and wise, seem to have forgotten a very important part of the syllabus. Let me read again from verse one, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. That's quite a kick to the teeth for a, a church that's claiming to be wise and clever, isn't it? I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul here takes us on a brief history tour 
And he wants to emphasize the incredible privileges that the nation of Israel, God's people, had. They were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. As in, they had God's presence with them. God rescued them from Egypt. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were united to the great leader of the Old Testament. They shared an allegiance with him. They shared a common destiny. They had spiritual food and drink. They received the spiritual provision and blessings as God sent manna from heaven and provided them with water in the deserts. An incredibly privileged people. And this was for all of them. Did you notice the repetition? Verse 1, all. Verse 1 again, all. Verse 2, all. Verse 3, all. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's very striking, isn't it? Everything looked good for this people. Everything on the, ex- on the outside looked good. They presumed they were okay, and yet God was not pleased with most of them. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll, you'll think, well, verse 5 is quite the understatement, isn't it? How many of the original nation made it into the land? Just the two. Joshua and Caleb. For the rest of them, well, their disobedience caused them to forfeit the promise. They never made it. They died in the wilderness. You see, the enjoyment of privileges doesn't guarantee final blessing. They thought that they would be okay. And they weren't. Paul says, Corinthians, listen up. Don't be ignorant of this. Remember that this is what happened in history. Why? Well, it's not just so that they passed the exams. Much more important than that. We're told that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. This is history that applies. History that should make a massive difference both to the Corinthians and to us. Maybe this challenges our attitude towards the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of lots of great stories, yes, but it's not just full of stories. It's not just full of information written for us that it might change the way that we think, the way that we act. These events occurred to stop us from setting our hearts on evil things. And then Paul goes through four particular ways that we're not to be like Israel. Number one, idolatry. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The quote's from Exodus 32. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. The rest of the Israelites, where are they? They're at the bottom, creating and worshiping the golden calf. Number two, sexual immorality. Verse eight, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Here, Paul's referring to Numbers 25. What did the Israelite men go and do? Well, they went to worship Moabite gods and indulged in sexual immorality. What happened? They died. Number three, testing. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Numbers 21 this time, for those taking notes. Israel complain about God and Moses. 
They complained that God had brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And so what happens? Well, semi-ironically, they do die. They're killed by snakes. Number four, grumbling. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. There's loads of examples of this. Numbers 14, Numbers 16. And again, they ended up dead. It's quite a somber tone, isn't it? And yet it's an important message for us. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It's important that we know the history of Israel and particularly when it went wrong. And you see, the the Christians in Corinth, well, they really need to pay attention to these warnings Why these four particular examples? Well, it seems that they have their equivalents in first century Corinth. The city of Corinth, littered with pagan temples, known for a wide range of um, worship um, services, worshipping a range of different gods, Christian there tempted to go and join in. Part of those worship festivals and feasts involving sexual practices. We've already seen Paul cover that in the letter. The Christians there known for testing and trying God's patience. The Christians known there for grumbling against God and his great apostle. They often say that folly or insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And yet that's exactly what Corinth is doing. They're doing what Israel did. That's why Paul says in verse 12, and this is where his argument has been heading all along. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Israel's great problem, presumption. We'll be okay. We're God's people. He's rescued us out of Egypt. We've received spiritual food and drink. Corinth's problem, presumption. We'll be okay. We're part of God's people. He's rescued us from death. We've been baptized. We eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink when we take the Lord's Supper. We go to church. We've grown up with Christian parents and a Christian family. We'll be all right. We'll keep going as Christians. Paul says, don't be so foolish. What a dangerous attitude. Especially as he goes on, because no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Out of context, we think that's an encouragement, but in context, I think it's a massive warning. You're facing the same temptation as Israel. You're doing exactly what Israel did. Why are you expecting a different result? You see, the Christian life isn't about our past CV. It's about how we're doing now. The Christian life isn't one where we can just flick on autopilot, just cruise along and think we're safe and immune. Look at what happened in the past. Don't be ignorant of that. Learn the lesson from history, says Paul. If you think you're standing firm, if you think you're doing well, it's dangerous. Be careful that you don't fall. The danger of presumption Now, of course, the the issue with a passage like this is that the wrong people hear the warning. This passage, the warning in it, it is not here for those who are fighting sin. 
they are the ones who need to hear the encouragement of the second half of verse 13. I think the second half of verse 13 is an encouragement. First half is is again a warning. Second half is an encouragement. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so, so that you can endure it. And that is a wonderful encouragement. God keeps his people going. But this promise isn't here to allow the presumptuous and complacent to be lazy. As he goes on in verse 14, here's the big application. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I think this verse is, is really helpful on a number of, um, for a number of reasons. Do you see the pastoral care? Corinthians are his dear friends. He has a great love for this church. And yet at the same time, pastoral care doesn't lead Paul to be wet about things. He knows the warnings are good for us. He knows that warnings are necessary for us as Christians. In fact, I take it that it is precisely because he cares about this church that he doesn't beat around the bush. He gives the instruction very clearly, flee not flirt with it, not see how close you can get without committing it, but flee, run away. And it fits with verse 13 very well. I want you to imagine for a second that you're out and for a countryside walk, you see a sign that says, it is not safe to enter this field because there is a bull in it. Well, what you wouldn't do in that situation is climb over the fence, get as close to the bull as you can, and then just pray that God would keep you safe. No, you would give thanks to God for the warning, and you wouldn't even go into the fields. When tempted, God will provide a way out. But don't be lazy. In fact, in personal experience, I often find that the way out of temptation is often to flee, to do something drastic, rather than doing nothing, and then wondering why we give in. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. We can apply this to many areas of life. Anything that we're tempted to serve and worship instead of God, anything or anyone that might take God's place in our hearts, money, possessions, career, success, health, fitness, pleasure, sex, holidays, the list goes on. Wonder what it is for you. Well, what it, whatever it is, the point is flee. Don't flirt. Flee. Otherwise, we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous position: the danger of presumption. The second heading, second half of the passage: the reality. Of participation. The reality of participation. You see, we need to keep in mind that the main issue that Paul is addressing in this section, this section that, remember, runs from 8 verse 1 through to 11 verse 1, is that of food sacrificed to idols. As we heard a few weeks back, Corinth, a place full of temples, full of idols, full of pagan worship. And the question for those who have recently become Christians is to what extent can I take part? 
To what extent can I take part in these things? What have we seen so far? Well, in chapter 8, Paul said that eating the foods is not problematic. If you pop down to the market in Corinth and there's some meat for sale that has been offered in the temple, it's not sinful to eat it. Unless, of course, remember this, unless, of course, it's going to cause issues for other believers. Or as we'll see next time in 1 Corinthians, it's going to cause issues for unbelievers. After all, it's better to be loving than right. But Paul in this section is very clear. Going to the temple to take part in the worship is sinful. And the reason for that is because participation. Let's look at verse 20. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to gods, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's where Paul is going in his argument, but you'll have noticed that that's not where he starts. Instead, he starts with a couple of other examples. Firstly, the Lord's Supper. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now, just from these two verses, we're not to get a full understanding of exactly what is happening as we take the Lord's Supper. But Paul's answer to both of these questions is yes. As we eat the bread and drink the wine together, in some way we are participating in both the body and the blood of Christ. And not only that, not only are we participating with Christ, we're also having fellowship with one another. And the reason for that is because we share the one loaf. That's the first example Paul goes to. And then he goes to the Israelite sacrifices. And you'll notice again that this word participate crops up. Again, it really is the key word of the section. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Answer, yes, they do. Now, I'll be honest, I don't exactly know what Paul means here. But he's definitely building this argument of participation. He's saying taking part equals participation by those who were at the sacrifices. And he knows that the Corinthians already know this and believe this. That's why he goes to these examples. He's, he's getting them on side. He uses these questions so that the Corinthians say, yes, yes, yes. They follow his logic. And then as he applies the point to food sacrifice to idols, they get it. Verse 19. Do I mean then that the food sacrifice to an idol is anything? or that an idol is anything? Answer, no. Paul's not changed his mind on what he said back in chapter 8. He still says that idols are nothing. Nada, zilch. He still affirms that any meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, it's nothing more and nothing less than a piece of meat. And yet he goes on in verse 20. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons... And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, just like taking the Lord's Supper involves participating with Christ, 
Just like the Israelite sacrifices involved participating in the altar, well, likewise, being involved in these food sacrificial services means participating with demons, Paul says. And you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. What's the warning if you're doing that? Well, you're arousing the Lord's jealousy. Back in the Old Testament, the Lord tells us time and time and time again, he is a jealous God. When does he say that? When his people are committing idolatry. Idolatry here, you're arousing the Lord's jealousy, and that's very dangerous. He's a lot more stronger than you are. So you see, the the food in Corinth, morally neutral. But going to participate in a pagan worship service, always wrong, Paul says. And therefore, what were the Corinthians to do? Flee. Flee from idolatry. Some scenarios that Andrew gave us a few weeks back. Your graduation from the University of Corinth. So your mum and dad come to celebrate, and naturally, as everyone does, they book a table down at the temple for a meal afterwards. But you've recently become a Christian, so do you go? Your first grandchild has been born, and so you receive a letter through the post. Dear mum and dad, we'd love you to join us as we celebrate the birth of our daughter Saturday, 10 a.m. at the temple. Will you go? The business deal. You've secured a business deal at work, so your boss invites the whole office to eat at the temple to recognize your success. The boss has spent a lot of money, and not going would be career suicide. Will you go? The answer to whether the Christians in Corinth go is all dependent upon the answer to the following question. Does going mean that I am going to be participating in the worship of demons? If so, that would be idolatry, and so do not go. Does going equal participation? That's the key question. It's the key question for those in Corinth, but it's also the question for us. Does going equal participation? Does going to the interfaith service equal participation in the worship of others? If so, do not go. Does going to the yoga class equal participation in the worship of others? If so, do not go. Because you're worshipping things other than the Lord Jesus. And that's dangerous. It's a question that we actually need to consider when those invitations come through the post. We need to sit down, and before we rush into anything, sit down and think, does going equal participation? Maybe get in touch with the person who's invited you. What will happen as I go? Does going equal participation? You might think, well, we don't really need to think about this. Can't we just move on and go with no qualms? Well, what does Paul say? Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? It's a bit too serious, isn't it? We need to genuinely ask that question. We need to 
seriously consider things like that? Does going equal participation? I don't know. It, it might be by going that you're going to have to participate, so therefore don't go. It, it might be the case that by going you don't have to participate. And so Paul says that's morally neutral. It might be a conscience decision. And yet we do need to think about it, don't we? Does going equal participation? But it can also be much broader than that too. So I guess there'll be, for most of us, more situations where going doesn't necessarily equal participation, but where going could lead to participation. What do I mean? Well, going to the pub to have a drink, not sinful. But we do need to make sure that we're not participating in the worship of alcohol and pleasure. Going on holiday, not sinful, and yet we do need to make sure that we're not participating in the worship of holidays and comforts. Going to school and work, not sinful. But we do need to make sure that we're not participating in the worship of education, money, and career. Now, with these examples, it's a lot almost harder than the Corinthian issue. It's, the Corinthian issue is a bit more black and white. Should I go or should I not go? For us, it's, it's more of a, we've got to know our own hearts. By going there, am I going to be tempted to participate in the worship of something other than the Lord Jesus? And if so, don't go, flee. It might be the case that we can go and not join in, and in which case, go. You see, we may not have questions about eating in pagan temples. We may not be tempted to worship metal images. And yet we do need to recognize that there are temptations. Temptations in our hearts each and every day to flirt with all kinds of idolatry. And so as we close, let me ask again, will we listen? As Paul sets off some very serious warnings, gracious warnings, loving warnings, but serious warnings, as Paul sets off the metaphorical siren, will we listen? The danger of presumption, the reality of participation, therefore, my dear friends, flee. Flee from idolatry. A couple of moments to collect our thoughts and then we'll pray and sing together. Father, help us indeed not to ignore this warning. Please forgive us for the times in the past where we have been tempted to flirt with idolatry, to commit it, to worship things other than you. Father, thank you that you give us warnings because you love your people and care for us and you want us to keep going. So help us to take this on board. Help us not to be naive. Help us to learn the lessons from history. Help us to see the danger of presuming that we're okay. Help us to see the reality of participating in the worship of things other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, may we be those who flee.
please, by your spirit, help us, we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together two final songs, both prayers. O great God of highest heaven, and be thou my vision. Let's stand as the music begins. <laughs>